Okay, in this episode, we've got a really exciting guest. We are trying to learn from other industries here. We talk a lot about hardware on Hello Blink Show, but we've got a pro from the SaaS world, which is software as a service, S-A-A-S, not SaaS like if you're sassy, although you could be both. It's not mutually exclusive. But this episode, we're going to learn from the software industry, which is highly profitable. And there's a lot of really interesting companies. I think that there's a lot of benefits to SaaS businesses that hardware companies just don't have. And so what can we learn from them? And what can we learn from a really successful person in that space? We're excited to talk to Natalie Luneva, who not only does she help run a business, she's also got a podcast and there's a ton that she's going to have to share with us. So we're going to jump right into it today. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Natalie, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So give us the quick, you got a lot going on in the SaaS world. So what is it all that you do? Because it probably I won't do it justice. <laughs> I have marketing background, 10 years of digital marketing background. So what I do, I help founders with three things, SaaS founders specifically, uh, digital marketing and growth, uh, identifying high ROI opportunities uh, from the business and growth perspective. And number three is growing high performance teams. A lot of time founders are not really experienced managing their teams and they don't have management experience. And I find that that in itself is a growth opportunity. So overall, all of those subjects are with the context of growth. And so you consider that to be marketing really in the domain of marketing versus sales. So you're coming in from a marketing perspective. Do you feel like that is what would you say is the difference between like marketing or sales? If someone says, I want sales help, would you say, oh, that's basically what I do too? Or do you think there's like a big distinction between the two? I think there is a big distinction, but at the same time, marketing is not what, you know, the only, this is my background, but this is not what I help companies with. It is growing and scaling. For example, so really it's like revenue uh, operations. Um, so for example, if we find that there is an area of opportunity, a low hanging fruit, a high ROI opportunity where company thinks that maybe they need help with SEO and they don't have enough content or something like this. But what I come and look at there, let's say Google analytics, uh, and I'm going into too deep, uh, details. Let me know if this is a too technical, but I look at their metrics and I see that, Hey, you already have enough, uh, traffic there to your blog posts. So you don't need more blog posts right now, but the, for example, the content, the, uh, the traffic is not converting really well. So this is our lowest hanging fruit, high hardware opportunity. Let's fix that first and then worry about improving our SEO or maybe if we can do it together, totally fine. But I mean, what's the point of bringing in more traffic hiring a salesperson, a BDR person, a person who would, you know, do a cold outreach, for example, um, to your potential customers, if your funnel is not optimized and does not convert really well. So first we figure out that. And then once we know that it's, it's good to go, we can pour more uh, water into the funnel. So I, I do have a question about that. So you're talking about growth opportunities here, or and when it comes to uh, driving traffic, and I think that a lot of listeners who are just starting their own business, that's a big hurdle for them is that traffic. Can you give us some insights into what 
kind of tips you might give somebody to improve that traffic? Um, is it inbound? Is it outbound marketing? Um, and is it specific to SaaS businesses? Let's be a little bit more, um, kind of make it a little bit more actionable for your listeners. If you are just starting out and you're thinking, how do I generate first sales? Let's not even talk about traffic just yet, because the ultimate goal of generating traffic is sales, right? So you're just starting out, your website is almost brand new, you don't have any SEO, Google doesn't rank you too much, you don't have a lot of content, you just have a website. You probably don't even have much money to put into PPC, which, by the way, I don't recommend to start with PPC in the beginning, just because you are not 100% sure about uh, the wording to use in the ads, what ads convert well, whether your message resonates at all. So you have not tested that at all. Unless you have you know, capital to test, then for sure. But if you are bootstrapped, most of the time you don't have a lot of money to burn using ads. And so what I recommend for all founders to do is find the communities like Facebook groups, Slack channels, a bunch of communities where you know your target audience hangs uh, around and then posts in those communities as much valuable content as possible around your subject. Let's say that your, I don't know, tool or software or something is around uh, analytics or helping marketing agencies. So you can post some questions or, you know, try to... Uh, start communication and um, just threads in those channels, in those communities with people so that they can answer the questions and say that, for example, you can answer a question, hey, do you have problem connecting your Google Analytics with your sales or whatever? Whatever question you have, you think your potential customer has this big pain, ask it in the channel, let people self-identify that, yes, I have this problem. And then you can manually reach out to them and say, hey, it looks like you have this problem. I don't have anything to sell to you yet, maybe, because this is a you know what early stage SaaS founders do, software founders do. They don't have a product yet. They're just testing the market. And so they say, I don't have anything to sell to you yet. I'm building this product. Can I pick your brain? Can you be my beta tester to mm -hmm. see if this is something that you and customers like you need and if I can solve this problem for you. So going to those communities is number one. Doing cold outreach is number two on LinkedIn. But the reason that I really like those communities is if you do a cold outreach to LinkedIn, this is really one by one by one by one, which is pretty time consuming, right? But if you post it in the community and let people self-identify that they have this problem, you have all the benefits basically with minimal time spent. Okay, so how do you find these communities? Let's say my target audience is SaaS founders. So you type in Facebook, SaaS, and then see what's going to come out. Or software uh, founders and see what's going to come out. Those groups that are most active and have the most users are going to be at the top. Join those groups. See what people don't do there. Do not post, do not pitch, because usually you're going to get banned there. So... Post and see what, you know, just to start conversations, ask the questions, do not pitch for the first seven days, do not do that, just see what people are doing, uh, maybe comment on their posts to get this engagement, maybe friends and people that you already chatted with, because by the way, I found that if you don't have any friends in the group, when you post, you're not going to get a lot of comments. When you uh, have friends in the same group, those friends are more likely to see your post once you post there and your post is going to get more comments, which is all that you want, because the more comments you get, 
uh, on your post, the more Facebook is going to promote and share this post to other people. And I've noticed that you have this SaaS Boss podcast and you've done a good job, in my opinion, creating a platform for other people to be on. So can you talk about how you've used creating content to get people that you're looking to work with or people who are like them onto your podcast. And it seems like they then amplify your message out there. It seems like it's a really smart way of creating a platform for people where you can host them on the show and then they reshare it and you share it and people like them notice it. Can you talk about how you're using your podcast as a way of drawing people in? That's a great question. And that's actually, so we talked about communities and cold outreach as the first two steps to do, uh, to get first two customers. The third step is partnerships. So I have my podcast. I do not interview SaaS founders, even though SaaS founders is my target audience. And this is who my potential clients are, but I'm really, uh, into interviewing experts just like me who work in the same industry but they do something else. So for example, maybe they do content marketing and I am not the one doing content marketing. So I do strategy, for example, identify ROI opportunities. And then when I need someone who is technical SEO person, for example, then I refer my SaaS client to that SEO person, for example. And so what I do is I build those relationships on my podcast. And by doing that, I am not, again, going one by one by one to my potential customers, which are SaaS founders. I go to a person who has similar audience, just like I do. And by interviewing them, hopefully they're going to share it with their community. And so I'm going to get this visibility of those people into my SaaS boss community. Oh, that's a really smart way of doing that. And Harris and I have done something similar where like we've like, you know, like I've got somebody reach out to me and I'm like, no, 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 what you really want to do when we talk to this guy, Harris, who does, you know, something that's, that's slightly different than what I provide in my, in my services. Um, so I really like that. And you're also giving your listeners who are potential clients unique information from these experts. That's a really good approach in how to use your podcast. And by the way, this is the reason why I started the podcast, not for me to build relationships, even though this is one of the top, probably this is the second why I wanted to start the podcast is to build relationship with those experts. But number one is I found that lots of podcasts in the industry are mostly interviewing other founders. My husband is a SaaS founder. And so I know that founders primarily sick and tired of hearing the message from other founders. And just because um, they talk about their wins, oftentimes they do not talk about how hard it was. And then they talk the story about just one perspective, right? And what they say in the SaaS community is you, your product may be a success. One product can be success. Let's say that you sell your first product and you start the second product and your second product, like the, the success with the first product does not guarantee that you're also going to be successful with the second, third, fourth, fifth, just because every single time it is different audience, it's different uh, target audience. And it's just the product is different. The market is different. We know how fast everything is changing. And so that's why I would really want to hear feedback and uh, thoughts and expertise from person who's done it multiple times and not person who's done who's been successful in one product in one instance but person who's worked in multiple companies and knows that the same thing may not work for everyone what happens in majority of the podcasts uh, for SaaS founders is 
the person, let's say they are successful with this tactic and they say, everyone needs to do this tactic. Everyone needs to implement this. And the thing is, it's not going to work for everyone because they're in different industry. They're in different stage of their company. This, the founder is different. So they, they have different strengths and weaknesses, right? So that's what I don't like when there's just one person and they share their wins. Um, and that's why I interview experts. We talked about partner marketing, and I think that I'm curious, I noticed in this SaaS that you're working with right now, Deposit Fix, that it's a HubSpot partner. And then you have that in your email signature. You know, w- What about integrations as a form of partner marketing? H- how does that work? How effective is that? I think you know, in the hardware world, you know, that would be maybe compatibility with different types of platforms. Maybe it's like building a desktop client for, you know, Mac and Windows and Linux and things like that. But like, how effective do you feel it is to sort of draft off of a larger business or a larger community or a larger product? And, uh, and how does that change the approach? Good question. So Deposit Fix, just to clarify, is my uh, husband's company. He started the company. I am a CEO and slash CMO slash C everything <laughs> in the company as well. Um, so Deposit Fix is a payment integration for HubSpot, and HubSpot is marketing automation. Just like Shopify, uh, for example, they have a bunch of apps. So our is basically is like payment app for HubSpot. Um, and so... Just a couple of days ago, I had a call with uh, SureSwift Capital. Not sure if you've heard of them, but they are a company who buy a lot of SaaS companies and then they grow them. So it's a very interesting perspective. And I asked them, how do you look at buying a company that are integration into a bigger company like Star Shopify app or HubSpot integrations, for example? And they said that surprisingly, they like those type of products while my hesitation was anytime HubSpot can just roll out their update and create a tool just like, you know, what we do, right? We have a friend who is connection on Shopify. And so Shopify does something similar. And so Shopify is a much bigger competitor uh, than you. And so you are basically doomed, right? Unless you are going to pivot and find a, an interesting um, angle to the problem. So they said that surprisingly enough, they like those tools. Uh, the integrations, even though I thought that there is uh, some potential um, problems that can uh, happen. Um, but what we when we launched uh, Deposit Fix, we knew that there's going to be an audience. So, so first of all, when you decide to do an integration, you need to see how big is the player. So maybe this is like Constant Contact or um, Shopify or HubSpot or Salesforce. So you need to see how big of a player they are. We know that uh, for example, Salesforce is a much bigger player than HubSpot. So you need to keep this in, this in mind. And also probably need to dig deeper and see if this is something on their radar that they want to build something like this. Do they see that this is a potential bigger opportunity? So is this potentially can be a threat to your tool if you're going to build that, right, this integration? Uh, but I would say that uh, HubSpot's um, referrals from HubSpot and their salespeople is a big chunk of our referrals and how we get our clients. Hmm. That is really interesting. So, so HubSpot people using HubSpot come to you. Is that what you're saying? 
Absolutely. So deposit okay. fix is only works when people use HubSpot. If they don't use HubSpot, deposit fix is not going to work for them. So people who are using HubSpot, they have their marketplace, the HubSpot uh, web on the website. They have marketplace and they list all of the integrations, including deposit fix. And deposit fix is one of probably like hundreds of integrations. Uh, they have different categories there. And so when people search for a specific solution or they search by a keyword, for example, they're able to find deposit fix or our competitors maybe. Um and so by this way, they are able to find us. But then number two is those salespeople, HubSpot have a lot of salespeople and uh, people who help onboard uh, their customers, their HubSpot customers to HubSpot. And so those salespeople is also a big referral uh, opportunity for us because HubSpot does not have an, uh, a tool that we provide, the service that we provide. And so it is in their benefit, for their benefit to refer their clients to us because unless they are partnering with DepositFix while subscribing to HubSpot, they may say HubSpot is not going to work for us without DepositFix. Mm. So that's why those salespeople actually promote DepositFix if they know that together with us, this potential client is going to have their best solution when they move to HubSpot, let's say from Salesforce. Got it. So, so I am very curious about these plugins that you're talking about, these plugins, these integrations with some of these larger SaaS companies. So like HubSpot, Salesforce, um, I know of several people who have created plugins and integrations with um, Salesforce and HubSpot. And they do very, very well, right? These are, you know, one, two person shops. They make this integration. It's a SaaS plugin and people pay a little extra for it. And these, and it's does very well for them. So I'm curious what your thoughts are as somebody who's advised such companies when it comes to attaching yourself to another larger company, is this, do you consider this a good play, a bad play, a temporary play? When it, when you say, I'm going to create a company that is, the entire focus of my company is to create something that's basically attached to another larger product like HubSpot. So if HubSpot tanks, you go down with it. What are your thoughts on that? Is it is it one of those, you know, this is fine, just make sure HubSpot's not going anywhere, or this is good, but constantly be looking for what your next play is going to be when it comes to creating another SaaS um, product? Not just another SaaS product. I think that this is a good play to test market. But if you don't have any HubSpot experience, keep in mind that this is going to be a huge learning curve for you. Uh, so I think you are going to be at advantage if you don't just integrate with HubSpot, but you integrate with multiple, let's say, Salesforce, Close.io, a bunch of those other CRM and uh, automation tools, for example, so that you bring the audience not just from HubSpot, because like I said, HubSpot is tiny, tiny uh, um, customer, sir, uh, customer size compared to Salesforce, for example. So keep this in mind if you want to work with HubSpot, that they are much smaller than Salesforce, for example. So I see a lot of companies that have integrations. They integrate with a bunch of those companies, let's say 10 or 20. And what they do is, I guess they just check how many customers those companies have. Let's say HubSpot. How many customers do they have? Is it worth for them to create the whole integration just to integrate with HubSpot? Or are they better off not doing that? So what I find with often happens uh, a founder decides to create a company and then they find that 
all of their customers or some of their customers are requesting some integrations to different uh, different tools like HubSpot, for example. And so they start building those integrations one by one by one. You don't build all of them at the same time, of course, but you build them one by one by one and then see what's the next, next re- most requested integration. And then you potentially assess if this is something that's going to be potentially uh, profitable for you. Okay, so you're going across the spectrum of like CRM tools or content management tools, and you start with like the most popular, and then you build across them. So people, you're still integrating with them, but that way you've kind of you know put eggs in multiple baskets. Exactly. This is the problem that we at Deposit Fisks have. We are only connected to HubSpot, and we are definitely thinking hard about that, and we are thinking about what our our next steps should be. But yes, you we are basically have all of our eggs in one basket. Which yeah. is not a good thing, not a good place to be at. And this, I can see this relating to the, so anybody listening who's a hardware person, I see this relating when somebody does something like, it's just an Arduino add-on, or it's just an add-on for this particular hardware platform. It's kind I see it as, as a similar thing, right? Like in the hardware world, it's a little bit different than the SaaS world, but similar idea. Like if you only work with, if you're making a product that attaches to one company's thing, it's the same idea, right? You're, you're basically putting all your eggs in that basket. Right. But at the same time, see if you have actually, uh, if you have all resources to go after multiple uh, integrations, right? So it's definitely like you need to weigh the pros and cons. And if you are doing uh, in the very early stage, you are targeting everyone, then it is hard to target everyone, right? So you need to still focus, especially in the beginning. Uh, this way you'll know what problems this particular niche is talking about or this particular customer avatar is talking about that use HubSpot, for example, or that use Salesforce because they're going to talk about this probably differently. So start analyzing that and then build one, make sure that you are successful there and then go to second, go to third. So, okay, this is really interesting because I think at the same time, you know, by focusing on one, like you were saying, it really kind of allows you to supercharge your growth, right? You're like, okay, we're doing this one thing. We're going to have really specific marketing. Our engineering team can be really focused. You know, your website and your messaging can be really focused. And it does allow you to sort of validate the problem. And so I think if you're bootstrapping, self-funding, or you're just trying to run a, you know, a capital efficient business, it's not the... It's not a. It seems like it's a good way to to get started, not a bad way, but that it, it's you know it's it's temporary in a sense that where like if you do this, you, it allows you to move really fast, but you have to prepare for what's absolutely. Next. I think when you are thinking uh, what kind of product or what kind of product to build or what kind of business to start, you need to think about the potential uh, addressable market. And so if you are just building something for house, but we made these mistakes early. So now we're kind of thinking what to do next. But if you are just, you know, marrying yourself to one thing, it is problematic, I would say. Like think what what should be next? What's next? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd like to jump into um, how you got involved into the coaching business in the SaaS world. What's your story? What inspired you? <laughs> Having 10 years of marketing background and marketing and leading teams, um, I started helping my husband with his SaaS. And so he said, and at the time I was uh, focusing on different uh, industry. And then my latest uh, job before that was a marketing director for a marketing agency. And so basically working with all the industries. And my husband said, you need to do that more for SaaS founders because there is definitely a need. And it's a very interesting 
group to talk to. Um, those are not enterprise clients. They are easy to approachable and they definitely see their on the younger side. So they definitely see the benefit. Okay. If you bring them, you know, two X or three X or even 1.5 X of what they have, they definitely see those, like they read those numbers, right? Uh, it's important for them, which you would be surprised how many industries are not really paying attention to that. So if you say that, Hey, we brought you 1.5 of, you know, what you had in any kind of metric you can talk about, they would not be impressed. <laughs> While SaaS companies are very uh, looking at their numbers really well. Um, and so he said that you need to help uh, SaaS founders more. And so I started focusing on the on this industry specifically and seeing how many uh, founders there are that I can help that do not have marketing background, that do not have management background. And unfortunately, all of those founders, they need to wear all those hats at least in the beginning, because they do not have funds to hire someone. And so they do all of that by themselves. Um, and there are so many experts, even marketing experts that say, yes, you need help with SEO. While what I do is I come and I say, let's step back and let's see what's your high ROI, lowest hanging fruit. That's not going to cost you an arm and a leg and you need to start all over. And often enough, um, I work with the one SaaS company who recently hired an SEO expert. And when you say to an SEO expert, I think I need SEO help. Of course, the SEO expert is going to say, yes, you do need SEO help. <laughs> so what I try to come in and say, okay, you need help in SEO and PPC and everything. Like, no doubt, you need more content. Almost everyone needs help with that. But let's prioritize. Let's see what's your highest ROI, lowest hanging fruit is. That's not going to take you too much time so that we have those small wins early on. And then once I convince you that you are able to achieve those results, we'll work together. So I first started as a consultant and now I'm helping more as a coach um, where I also have a mastermind. Uh, I do a few different things. I have a community. Um, I have a coaching program, but I also do consulting um, to those who need that help. Harris, I want to pause for a second and talk about our sponsor, Cyber City Circuits. What can you tell us about them? Well, they're a U.S.-based electronics manufacturing company based in the heart of downtown Augusta, Georgia. They work with us because we talk to folks like you about how to build a business. They do the electronic side of things. They do contract manufacturing. They sell kits. And they are great to work with. If you want, you can save money on your next order by working with them. And I'm going to let you, Sean tell you how. Yeah, so check them out, cybercitycircuits.com. If you tell them that you heard about them through our show, Hello Blink Show, you can get 25% off the assembly cost of manufacturing or use the coupon code Hello Blink Show at checkout for 10% off the order for your electronics order. Let's get back to the show. How much of your work with founders is technically oriented versus being personally oriented like is it that they just need a sounding board and that they need someone from the outside to just be honest with them about sort of what's working and what's not working how much of it is the fundamentals of the business where you're really deconstructing specific things and talking about deliverables and the numbers versus you are just like a resource for them and 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 giving them just a sense of perspective as a almost like as a, like an emotional coach and rather than necessarily like, you know, cause I feel like a lot of times coaches, like sometimes they say, Oh, you should have shot the ball there instead of passed the ball. But other times they're 
just saying like, hey, you did a great job today. You played really hard. Don't worry about the loss. Let's just like work on this stuff and practice tomorrow, right? So there's like different ways that people coach. I'm curious how that works I'll out. I'll be in honest, your it is a combination of all of that, of what you just said. I do not call myself like a spiritual coach or like mental coach, which all of that, I, I think to, to a software engineer is going to sound like they probably just tune out right now. <laughs> Uh, this is usually what not not what they where they start, but this definitely comes after I help them fix one of their biggest problem. Let's say that they are so lost and they do like ten different things and they know they don't know you know where to focus on. And so first of all, I try to clarify those priorities. We look at those metrics, at their metrics. I first of all, usually they don't even have they don't even know their metrics. They don't know whether they're growing and that what percentage month over month their growth rate is so i help identify those metrics first we then together sit down and identify higher opportunities based on what they share with me where i see their strengths are so it's very personable i would say um and then together with that there's definitely a like a, a sense of some uh, executive coaching where Oftentimes, they're so burnt out and so overworked uh, that they don't know where to go, what to do, and they just need to be heard and told that it's okay. Everyone else are just like you. You are not unique, even though you see that there are so many, dozens of hundreds of other companies that, you know, share the numbers that, you know, within three months, they went from zero to 100k MRR or something like that. Even though you hear those stories, those are exceptions. And 90% of people are just like you that are struggling to figure out if this is your first company, there are going to be learnings, right? So you just need to be uh, prepared to that and expect that. But oftentimes, like just yesterday, I talked to one founder and he said that he was crying a week before because he did not see his kids longer than 10 minutes a day. And so sometimes it is just hearing, validating their concerns uh, and helping them cope with that. Even with my husband, for example, he was at a point where he was doing all by himself. But this is not the time to talk about all of your you know, mental uh, you know, growth and opportunities that you have from mental perspective. This is not the time just yet. You need to fix the problem that is right there first. Hire, uh, help, uh, help the person, maybe hire a support person or like an admin person or a marketing person, help him stabilize what he has right now or she has right now. And then we can talk about, Hey, you know what? I think that you need to take at least four hours a week to work on strategy because a lot of times founders just sit there as in a swamp, you know, not really growing because they don't have time to think about what's next. They're trying to keep their head above the water, and that's not not good. And that's not good enough uh, during these times, right? Like everything is so fast, and the competition is so fast. So you need to do all of that in your business. Plus, you need to look out for growth opportunities. And then I would talk about let's set at least four hours a week, every single week, where you talk about you know think about potential opportunities, strategy. And right now, this is where my husband is, where six months ago, he was not able to pull up his head from the water to take a breath. And right now he's thinking about, okay, I need to go to a gym. Like now he's talking, now he's leaving. He lives his life 
while before it was such a struggle and mentally it is very, very challenging. So there was a good book that Chris Gamble, um, a previous guest we had recommended, and it's the E-Myth Revisited. Um, and it, yeah, you know this one, and it talks about the same idea. It's like you need to find some time to work on your business rather than just being swamped in it. So that is that is a good one. And yeah, what you're saying is absolutely true. If you're finding yourself being swamped, you know, so so in a way you do play st- spiritual coach. <laughs> and that's people. what one of the founders yesterday, he told me that you are a great coach. Like you, you helped me open up within 30 minutes of our conversation, but that's not my intent. <laughs> 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 I don't know how, how it turned out to be. E-Myth Revisited, I think every single entrepreneur needs to read this book. What I love in the book where this part just stuck to me so much, where when you are about to hire your first person, let's say that even your first assistant, whatever, I hired more than 100 people, uh, both probably like 200 people, a few dozen at the office full time, and more than 100 remote uh, freelancers uh, and remote employees. So when you are about to hire your first help, marketing assistant, admin assistant, support person, whoever, there's going to be a learning curve for you to learn the management because you think how difficult can it be telling people what to do? And it turns out to be fairly hard. It's not as easy because you can tell someone one thing and they hear it completely different, just completely differently, just because their perception is different. They're in a different mindset. They're in a different company. There are so many cultural differences. I'll tell you a funny story. About a week ago, I was driving home with my kids and I texted my husband, can you, uh, can you prepare uh, pasta, like macaroni? Can you cook it? I come home to a pot with boiling water <laughs> 15 minutes later. And I'm asking, like, I was so lost that within 30 minutes, I was like, we did not talk about this, but I was frustrated. Like, I told you to boil it. And he's like, I boiled it. I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's like, that's what you told me, to boil the water, to put the water so that you can later come and put the macaroni in it. I'm like, can you text, check your message again? And he checks this. And he's like, the first time that he sees that, I don't know how is it possible to not read it correctly. But it just comes to, and he's not a stupid person. Like everyone, this happens with everyone. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When you share your message, keep in mind that the other person receiving the message is going to hear it differently and receive different information. So there is a lot, of, there is a very high chance that some of the information is going to be lost. So when you are hiring your first person, managing your first person, Expect that there's going to be friction, misunderstanding, and expect that you need to say something five times while you think that it's going to be so easy and roses. And finally, you know, today I hire someone and next week I'm going to go on vacation because this person is going to help me do everything, which that's not going to be the case. <laughs> nope, nope, not at all. Yeah, the, the book definitely goes into that. And it's like you, it, it was often found in the book that the person you hire to think he was going to like solve all your business problems just eventually make it worse. So yeah, it, it was really good. So at what point do you decide? Cause right now I'm, I'm getting, I'm starting to like hire freelancers and other people to help with video editing, audio editing, things to take off my plate. And I, I don't think I'm quite at the point where it's like, I need admin help, right? Maybe, maybe here and there, but it's generally stuff that I can manage. Um, and even if so, maybe I would look for a freelancer at what point do you're like, okay, it's going beyond I need freelancer help and it's time to like full-time hire somebody because I need that help. Like what's that threshold? 
do you I recommend? I think for bootstrapped entrepreneurs, you do not come with a position for a new person and you do not hire them for 20 or 40 hours a week right away. I think you first need to identify your repetitive tasks that you are doing every single week or at least often that take enough of your time so that by hiring this person, explaining them and watching them and managing them and making sure that the quality stays there is still going to be beneficial for you. And you, let's say that there is a task like video editing that takes you maybe 10 hours a week, every single week. So you know that that's a good task for you to outsource unless it's, you know, the only thing that you can do really well and that you enjoy doing. And this is all that you want to do, for example. So if this is a task that someone else can do, it is repetitive and you hi- can hire someone that's going to be costing you less than what you charge on someone else uh, for the same service. Absolutely do that. But you char- you know, you hire them one at a time. And what I usually say is I hire them for a project, but I say that there's an opportunity for us to work together. Uh, I, I need this help. I just want to make sure that we work well together. And the work quality that you produce is good. And so we can work, you know, I'll give you more hours after that. This is like a test project. And so you hire them, let's say, for five hours a week. You see how they do. And by the way, when you hire, you ask, are you available to work with me once I expand your hours? Are you available for that? Because if they're not, like think twice if you want such a person, because then you're going to have this person working on your five-hour task a week. You're going to have to hire someone else to work on another you know, five-hour task a week. So you potentially want someone who has capacity to expand hours when you are ready. Now, I'm a little bit, that's that's really helpful. Now, I'm in a little bit of a different spot than Sean. I have not uh, been comfortable necessarily outsourcing like parts of my consulting business because I don't know, I don't know why. I'm kind of type A, I guess. And I just feel like, oh, I can do it myself, um, which is probably not. But Harris, you efficient. get to have minions. But- you can have minions. <laughs> that's okay, I right. <laughs> I, know, I know that somebody I'm hiring as a contractor is going to listen to this and be like, he just called me a minion? Really? <laughs> yeah, they knew you were a villain, and I proved it. And uh, so I tend to sort of own the whole stack. What I have felt comfortable with is hiring some people who to build out like parts of a SaaS that I'm building. Um, so you know, with like an integration, um, or to help with you know just some really specific things that like UI, right? Where it's like I'm not a UI person, but I've. I feel like I'm shifting now into like the sales and marketing mode as I'm moving into beta and I know how to do those things more. So at at the same time, I feel like I could find help that would cost me less, but it's an area that I know more about. And I'm feeling like, well, I don't have the MRR yet to sort of the, the business isn't generating enough. This side thing isn't generating enough on its own for me to be hiring the sort of like ongoing help with sales and marketing. And I could do it myself, but I could be doing something else. I'm curious, just like, how do you think about if you have like a, a standalone business and you're looking at investing in like a new product or a side thing, the constraint of that the business needs to sort of stand on its own? Because like in my mind, like if I'm investing like R&D money, that I can sort of justify that from the consulting business, but it feels like sales or marketing or some of these ongoing expenses, those for some reason in my mind, that feels different. Um, And I'll talk about how I think that's different for our listeners than it is for me. I think our listeners tend to be the opposite. I think the listeners tend to do the engineering work and then they would need help with the the marketing. But so my, my question is, you know, when you have this new thing, how much money does it need to make? What do you think about using that as a limiter on investing in growth 
uh, very rambling question, but does that make sense? I think there is a, keep in mind that there is such a thing as opportunity cost. So when you are doing all of those things yourself, where are you missing out on? What's your opportunity cost for you working on something that you are not maybe 100% proficient and someone else probably could do it better than you, but you're taking this time working on those things and something else that could potentially be an opportunity is neglected or you don't have time working on that. This is what happened with my husband where he's like, it's only taking me 10 minutes to do that. But then think about all of those 10 minute tasks that you are working on and all of those 5, 10, 20, 30 minute tasks that you are never getting to just because you're working on those 10 minute tasks that are less important. And then 5, 10, 20 minute tasks that are sitting on your to-do list for months that are much more important but I think it's a feel of procrastination as well. It's easier for you to do easier tasks that are taking 5, 10, 20 minutes than working on those projects that only you can do. And so you're cluttering your to-do list with all of those less, let's say not less important things, but things that someone else can do for you. And so you're creating this opportunity cost, I think, and you are hindering your company growth potentially and right now, I think we are at a time where we cannot afford that, to be honest with you. So that's why I'm pushing founders a lot of times, a little bit out of their comfort comfort zone. Of course, if your other business does not generate enough money, you cannot hire someone else. Like you cannot be in minus, right? You cannot be in negative. But if you have like one business that is generating money and you are building your second one, you have income, you have this, you know, money in the bank, you're just a little bit afraid and you don't want to spend that. I would say that this is an opportunity. So if you do not do that, it, like if you have money in your bank account and you are not starving, you you know your family have place to live and stuff like that. I would take this. I, I would I would be on a riskier side. Don't quote me. Don't say like don't come six months later and say Natalie said you know I need to be more risky <laughs> and I burned through fifty thousand dollars or something That's like that. But I see that. When you are a little bit on the riskier side, like you need to stretch yourself. This is this is a little bit of a mindset coaching, I would say. You only grow when you are stretched. If you are not stretched, you never grow. You stay in the same thing, right? Like for example, like speaking gigs or speaking engagement, like majority of people would not be comfortable doing a podcast interview, for example, but, but, but you kind of go through that, right? And then your second, third, fifth is going to be better. And then looking back, you feel so much better. And now you've achieved so much more. So I think stretching is a big thing. If you are too comfortable in the comfort zone, if you are sitting constantly in your comfort zone, I would say that this is not entrepreneurship and you are, a little, you are too timid. You need to be a little bit on the riskier side. So something else that I want to I want to add to this, um, you mentioned like all those 10 minute tasks, the context switching between them is also hugely costly. Um, it can take you like if it's a task that requires some mental energy, a 10 minute task may take 15 minutes just to context switch into or out of. So you have to remember that like, oh, I've got like a bunch of stuff on my list, but like it could take all day, even if they're five minute tasks, just because of the context switching. Um, so that can be a huge cost as well. And the other thing that I, I, that Natalie, you were getting to, you're probably familiar with this term, the genius zone. And I wish I knew which book or paper or article it came from. I'm sure we'll find it and put it in the show notes. Um, but this idea of if you're not 
operating in your genius zone as much as possible, you're wasting a lot. You're, you're paying a lot of that opportunity cost where you could be. And the genius zone is like what you can provide unique value to and only you. So like only Harris can do X, Y, Z. So, you know, my, my genius zone when it comes to creating content is breaking down complex um, technical things for people and describing how to do things. If I'm not, if I'm spending all my time editing, I'm not in that genius zone. So that's where like, I need to look at getting help because I need to spend more time in that genius zone or like Natalie was talking about, you need to spend more time working on your business in order to grow it. If that makes sense is that's, that's kind of my understanding. Two comments here. I would say I agree with you on the genius zone, but at the same time, if your genius zone is doing five to $10 tasks that someone else, you know, that you can pay someone Mm. else to do five to $10 tasks, like this is not your genius zone. So be careful about that. Ideally, your genius zone needs to correspond with the highest paying tasks that no one else can do. True. Yeah. Also, yes. You should not be perfectionist because if you say that only I can do that, a lot of the times it's your ego talking. Someone else can definitely do it. And it's okay if they can do it only at 80 or 90 or 70%, you know, do what you can do it. Maybe let's say your quality of doing this is better. But if it's taking you 10 to 15 hours a week and someone else can do it at a much less cost to you uh, at 80%, I'm always for that. I'm always for that, personally. You may be different. Again, don't quote me on that. But I would say that, think about this, the opportunity cost again. Uh, The second thing is the content switching. Something that in my mastermind uh, that I run for SaaS founders, I've mentioned recently, and it was like apparently a huge thing, which uh, to me, it wasn't as uh, brilliant. But I recommended uh, allocating your days of the week. Let's say Mondays, you work on marketing. Let's say Tuesdays, you work on sales and follow-ups. Let's say Wednesdays, you work on your product or whatever you, know, whatever you want to work on. Thursdays can be operations and Fridays calls with the clients or something like that. If you can do, cannot do this like day by day, maybe at least allocate it in your calendar like uh, four hours on Mondays, this is what you do. And you only do that and you block it and no one else can, you know, no other meetings can be booked at that time. So... So that this way you can avoid this content switching. I, I will say for the uh, engineering mind, um, like when I when I do work and if I have to dive deep into like an engineering thing, like if I can't allocate two or three hour blocks, it's not even worth getting into. And sometimes it might take days to for like me to fully wrap my head around concepts and like interruptions during that time can be killer. So if you're working on engineering or programming tasks, understand that when you're blocking your time, like like what you're talking about, Natalie. To follow up on that, my husband often tells me, and he's a software engineer, and he often tells me, I need at least two hours to work on that. To that response, yes, I agree. Like 90% out of the time, maybe you do. But a lot of times, uh, you know, knowing the software engineer mind, you are uh, thinking a little bit too broad. And this thing, if you would work a little bit more efficiently, and if you put yourself in this, uh, in this like brackets where you only need to, you only have two hours and you need to complete this task in two hours. It's okay that it's only done at 85% or something like that. But the fact that the matter is you're going to spend, I don't know, days searching for that block of time where you can work on that. And this is called procrastination. 
is it possible for you to find, let's say that you need five hours and I'm not software engineer, so I apologize, but it's just think about, is it possible for you to shorten that? Is it possible for you to complete something in shorter time frame? And you are just procrastinating. Well, Natalie, you have either compromised my Basecamp and Google Calendar accounts, or you know what you're talking about, and you've worked <laughs> with people like this over the years, and you have a very deep familiarity. I'm not sure which. I suspect it's the latter, because you definitely seem to understand uh, the challenges that people have, I think, when they're when they're working on scaling things like this. And um, I think this has been a really interesting set of things to think about. You've Definitely already. I feel like I feel like you should we should be paying you to be on the show because I've gotten a ton out of it. What did we not ask you about? I, I feel like there's a lot that you could cover and discuss and that you go through with your coaching and you know running deposit fix and doing SaaS boss. But what did we not touch on that you wish we had talked about or what would you encourage us to think about moving forward? Um so we're talking to people who maybe have a product or uh, like a consumer product, maybe. And so maybe if you're thinking into uh, getting into a software product, the the, dif- the difference, a big difference between the two is where you can, t- with software product, you can test before you build something. So if you're thinking about, I need to build this product and then after that, I'm going to get to, you know, co- communicating with my potential customers and pitching in to them or, you know, offering that uh, to them, this is too late. The only uh, successful product that, you know, profitable, really profitable product that my husband built was when he offered this as a service first. He very deeply understood the problem, how those people talk about the problem. He solved this problem for multiple people, and then he put it into a SaaS product. When he was doing it backwards, which is building the product first, maybe spending six months building all the features and all the beautiful bells and whistles and UI and UX and stuff like that. And then when it was time to promote it, crickets. Because you are thinking too much about building the product and not about how do you get it in the hands of those people. Because somewhere, somehow, someone told that when you have good product, people will come. Well, not anymore. Maybe 20 years ago. But not anymore. These days, I'm almost certain that your product has competition. So if it's not your product, then someone else's. And uh, last thing that I'm going to say, if you have a product, let's say that you've done that. You've talked to your uh, prospects first. You identified the problem before you actually build the product. And then maybe even you deliver this product, not as a product, but as a service. I'm talking to one of the founders who does not have the product yet, and he is thinking to deliver this as a service first. And I said, absolutely, go with that first. Identify those problems. Identify what you need to have in the product and then build that. So this is one thing. But but when you have the product, I say this. It is your moral obligation to get this product in the hands of the people if it's going to help them. Let's say a person is struggling with something. Your product is solving this problem. It is your moral obligation. So if you do not feel comfortable because you may be a little bit timid uh, to reach out to people and do cold outreach or you don't want to post in the Facebook community, one of the members of my mastermind group said, I don't want to post in the Facebook group because it's going to bother people there. Uh, So if you are on that side, it is your moral obligation to get your product in the hands of the people who you're going to help with the product. I, you you nailed the whole engineering fallacy that I see come up over and over and over again. I suffer with it. I get it, but I it's it, it you have to study a little bit of marketing, like you're talking about, to try to like understand the the whole idea of if you build it, they will come is completely wrong. It happens 
once in a blue moon. And I think we worship like the Microsofts and the Facebooks um, as like, wow, they became billionaire founders by creating this novel product. And you were like, oh, it's so amazing. That's what I'm saying. 20 years ago or like 40 years ago. And even then it was a complete, you know, like one out of a billion shot. Even then, like, are, like, are you really going to be that rock star? Like, what are you, what are your chances? Like, maybe, maybe if, if you think you have a killer product, I mean, absolutely go for it. But the chances are so slim that it's like you're missing the whole marketing side of figuring out, is there a need at all? So, Natalie, I think this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, how can people find you? Where can they go learn more about you? Can they reach out to you on social media or follow you? Absolutely. I'm active on Facebook. Reach out to me, Natalie Luniva. Uh, I have a podcast. Check out my website, Natalie Luniva. And I am excited to connect with you. I'm also active on LinkedIn. So do connect with me. I am excited to answer your questions. If you're interested to join a mastermind group for SaaS founders, I have a really good group, multiple groups. Um, I'll let you know uh, about that as well. I just want to say thanks again, Natalie. You've uh, been phenomenal. We connected through the MicroConf uh, Connect group. So if you think Natalie's interesting, there's uh, more people like her online, reach out and uh, connect because there's a ton that you can learn from uh, Natalie, especially and people like her. And uh, thanks for joining us. Hey, everyone. Harris and I want to run a special segment at the end of some of our shows where we give a shout out to one of our listeners. If you'd like to be included in this, please send us a quick audio clip that's 30 seconds or a minute long to info at helloblinkshow.com. Now, let's hear from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Matt Bradshaw, and in 2020, I released my first ever product, an aleatoric drum machine, which uses random numbers to create interesting rhythms. It's an open source hackable project which reached the finals of the Hackaday Prize and I was only able to design it after learning KiCad from Sean's tutorials. So thanks Sean. If you're interested, the drum machine is called Drum Kid and you can buy it from my website mattbradshawdesign.com. Thanks for making the show guys. I listen to it in my shed in Oxford, England while I'm assembling drum machines. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Hello Blink Show. Find show notes at helloblinkshow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skull Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Maxwell slash routine.